Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Faith at the forefront of today's events. From a Catholic cultural perspective, it's In the Arena with your host, Monsignor Kieran Harrington. So, hey, gang, welcome to In the Arena. My name is Monsignor Kieran Harrington. On today's program, we'll be talking with Father Robert Carboneau about the Catholics in China. He's an, an Emmy Award-winning producer and author. Chris Whipple will be talking to us about his new book, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. Pat Halpin is joining us for a current events roundup, including healthcare, Hillary Clinton and Stephen Colbert's monologue about Donald Trump. And Alexis Wolkenstein will be speaking to us about her new radio show, Mary's Touch. So welcome, Father Robert Carboneau. Glad to be here, Father Carboneau. Father, you're a uh, passionist uh, priest. What is a passionist priest? Passionists were founded uh, in 1720. We're an Italian-based order. We've been in the United States since 1852, and we help people understand the meaning of suffering and the meaning of the cross so that people can lead their way towards healing. So we're primarily preaching in retreat houses, but we do that as the way that's our message to bring the cross and healing to the Catholics and people of the world. So it's kind of appropriate then that your work involves the church in China then. Oh, it's it's very appropriate, especially since the Passionists were in China from 1921 to 55 as missionaries in Hunan province. And that's how I ended up starting to learn about the Catholic Church in China through that missionary story and that missionary legacy. Tell us about that. How did you uh, how did you kind of come into Because you have a degree. I have a doctorate from Georgetown in American and East Asian history. I've taught in China from 2007 to 2008 and actually was in China last month and uh, we had a talk at the National Seminary about Vatican II and the role of the faith. Uh, the The real issue really for the Chinese Catholics is how to continue to grow in faith. And what the missionaries did was they certainly worked in the 20th century, and then they ran into struggles with, with war. They ran into struggles with the anti-Japanese war and then the sufferings and persecution uh, in 1949. And many people thought that that whole legacy was dead. Uh, Mary Knoll in the greater New York area, and, and certainly many people would know Mary Knoll, the Sisters of Charity Convent Station, the Passionists, the Holy Name Province, the Franciscans. Uh, they were just some among the many of the groups that, that uh, went into China. And their legacy really retained itself because when China opened up in the 1980s, uh, these Catholics got back with the old missionary orders, the Jesuits, everybody, and said, our faith is strong. Thank you for giving us the seed that actually kept us alive to this time. So what is the U.S. Catholic China Bureau? The U.S. Catholic China Bureau is an organization, uh, an association of uh, people interested in China, uh, pastoral people, scholars, lay people who try to educate the American Catholic public and greater society, uh, Christians, about the Catholic Church in China. Uh, and it's based in Berkeley, uh, California. Uh, if you go and look us up online, U.S. Catholic China Bureau, you can learn much more about us. But we actually have a mission since 1989 to educate the American public about the Catholic Church in China. What do you think is the intersection <clears throat> between 
the economics uh, liberty that is starting to take place in China, right? It's basically, we think about communist China, but in fact, it's kind of like I got a capitalist philosophy mm. in a lot of ways. Uh, but there's an oppressive government, right, in terms of a totalitarian mm. com- command and control type situation. What's the intersection between the politics, the economy, and uh, and religion in China right now? Well, I've, I've sort of come to a realization, at least in my trips there the last five years, that I would say the issue is becoming a good Catholic and a good citizen. So people want success within the structures of economic opportunity, family opportunity, social opportunity, but they also want to express their faith. So how do they do that, really? And the Catholic Church is is becoming a place where people will find peace in the various layers of that society of how to live. But is the, does that, uh, the, the question, I guess, becomes this, is, is if you have a, a government which is an oppressive government, would you agree that China is an oppressive government or no? Yeah, I think it's an oppressive government. It has layers of oppression there, so it, is as there well a... as layers of openness that everyone's trying to understand. I think it's an, uh, that both sides are operative at the same so time. So the question is, is the desire overthrow the government and install a government that is more— I'm not saying this is—like, there's a political question, right? If you have a—like a, in communist Cuba, you overthrow the government and inst- and have a government that is uh, more on the behind side of the people, or do you kind of deal with the structure of oppression? I think I think peop- one of the aspects that has mo- become most clear for the U.S. Catholic China Bureau is— this is a Catholic faith that the Chinese Catholics have to understand for themselves. So they have to determine how they want to live out that faith. We support them in the various ways of providing interaction, layers of links, uh, support, and anyone who goes there as a Catholic can do that. Uh, they have to determine, as any other group in society, how to handle their own uh, Internal circumstances. But there's some conflict even within the different provinces. China is a vast country. Yes. And there's some big questions. Like, for instance, you know, think about the Patriotic Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times we have the sense that that's the government church. But in fact, you have a lot of Catholics, Roman Catholics, faithful Roman Catholics who are participating in the Patriotic Association. But then you have a lot of people who say we're the underground church and reject the Patriotic Association altogether. But even the underground church sometimes has actual church buildings and structures mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So it's hard for us to kind of understand all this, isn't it? Right. And that's one of the reasons for our uh, Catholic uh, conference at August 11th to 13th at St. John's University this year that anyone is welcome to come to. Because it is a layered situation, people can come in. They can attend this. We're going to have uh, the Archbishop Nugent, who was the Holy See mission uh, person, uh, and in Hong Kong, and sort of watched all this aspect of China development, China relations emerge. He's now the present apostolic delegate mm-hmm. to Haiti. We have a biblical scholar uh, coming in, Father Zhang, who's going to give a keynote. We're going to give an award on a banquet with to Sister Janet Carroll, who's a Marian old sister, and uh, she's going to have. She was a founding person of the U.S. Catholic China Bureau to bring this message of relationship. Friendship is the key thing that we uh, want. And Bishop Emeritus, Auxiliary Bishop Emeritus, Bishop Wong of San Francisco, he will actually uh, be our celebrant and presider. And then we have scholars coming. So I, I answer that. crowd, yeah. I, I answer that. We, you know, we welcome anyone to register. How, how, how transparent is this conversation going to be? Because, you know, the uh, Cardinal Archbishop of Hong Kong has been very critical of the Holy See. Well, in fact, because there, of his views that, you know, it's accommodating too much to the government. Well, and not- remember, there's two voices in Hong Kong, uh, Bishop, uh, Archbishop Zen, Cardinal Zen right. and also Cardinal Tong. Right. Cardinal Tong and Cardinal Zen 
are both two voices. Cardinal Tong has issued a pastoral letter asking for looking at ways of dialogue and reconciliation. How are they practical ways that can be dealt with? One of the key things that we will have, which has always been a trademark and hallmark of our conferences, is we actually will have Chinese priests, Chinese seminarians, uh, not excuse me, not seminarians, but Chinese priests and sisters who have on-the-ground experience. They will actually be talking about various pastoral initiatives, uh, education initiatives, gender charities, which does social outreach. All these people will be part of our conference. So that's a way to really get in a person-to-person dialogue in a transparent way. When I was in the seminary, I lived with fellows who were uh, seminarians, Chinese students. Uh, Some were from the underground church and others were from Patriotic Association. And there was enormous distrust uh, and, you know, we, we as a uh, American kid, I looked at these guys and said they were all Chinese. But there was, you know, later you discovered that was not the right, case, that right. there was great. Uh, how do you kind of get behind that question? Well, well I, think, I think you go back to the basic issues that this is a Catholic faith that is emerging in their own context. Uh, I think we can impose it's, it's how they live out their faith. So I think we can overemphasize. We I think we have to have a reality check that there are layers of structure that the Catholic Church. I prefer registered and unregistered. Mm-hmm. Underground sounds a little bit too secretive and clandestine. When really a lot of times it's it's dealing with issues of legality, corruption, access through the state administration of religious affairs. All the different provinces are different. Some provinces right. are stronger Catholic than uh, others. others right. Urban churches are different than rural churches. And so a people's faith is different. In terms of those priests, one of the benefits of them being in the seminary is they began to learn about each other. They realized that their Catholic faith is a Chinese Catholic faith, and they began to trust one another or be aware of the various voices. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much persecution does the church in China endure today? I, term, I tend to prefer the term, and this could be a very in, interesting debate among people, I tend to per, I prefer the term that suffering is more accurate than persecution. I think persecution brings the old remnant of the 1950s, and actually the church has grown to 12 million people who are there. So I think that uh, I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd say that most Catholics are free to operate probably about on a six or seven. It's hard. To, but again, China's a big country. Most people say whatever you're looking at in China Is it operates. only the poor? Is it the intelligentsia? Is it Both. across all the classes? It's all classes yeah. because people with intellect realize that they need something. The Confucian values, uh, the friendship of Confucian values, the Buddhist values. These are transposed into communities where the Chinese Catholic faith is coming alive. Is the church growing in China? Yes, it's growing. There's been some pockets now where there's different areas that uh, will have difficulties uh, because of just uh, economic and the movement and migrations of people. But again, if you come to the—I uh, want to invite anyone who's hearing this to come to our United States Catholic National Conference August 11th the 13th at St. John's University because we will have all these various representatives— it's a great opportunity. You can come for the whole weekend. You can come as a commuter if you're in the New York area. Go on to our website, U.S. Uh, Catholic China Bureau, and there's a ways to register. Last question. Single greatest accomplishment uh, of the U.S. Catholic China Bureau, and what is the most important project you're working on today? 
we have kept the life of the Catholic Church alive in the American public's eye, and the most important aspect is we are a network organization that keeps these relationships of friendship and bridges with the Catholic Church in China alive. We, we keep the relationship of China with the World Church, and we are all world Catholics, and that's why we're together. Father Robert Carboneau is a uh, is a passionist father, and he is a Chinese a scholar of Ch- on China and the Catholics in China. We're very grateful for having you here in the arena. We invite you all to the conference at St. John's University this August. Up next, we're going to be speaking with Chris Whipple. He's the author of The Gatekeepers and How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dear Calvary Hospital, James Lee was a true hero. Saving lives was something he always wanted to do, whether as a paratrooper for the 82nd Airborne or as a New York City fireman. They called him Jimmy. I was proud to call him Dad. But when terminal illness ravaged his body, this man's man knew that this was one life that could not be saved, not even by me, an experienced nurse. It just wasn't fair that he had to suffer like this. But then Calvary stepped in. You relieved his enormous pain and not only gave him the peace and comfort he deserved, but you also gave me and my family a chance to enjoy his final days, smiling and laughing, together one last time. How can we ever forget what you mean to us? Yours truly, Colleen Lee. This is Frank Calamari, president of Calvary Hospital, where life continues. Call us at 718-518-2000. Thank you. And Butchies of Brooklyn, Italian kitchen and legendary desserts. We offer everything, a cafe, a bakery, a restaurant, and full bar. Our kitchen offers old-world Italian recipes, handed down from generation to generation, specializing in Italian-American cuisine. Let us host your next affair in our home, or we can cater to you in your home. Located in Staten Island at 4864 Arthur Kill Road, and you can call us at 718-227-0002. As the pieces of the financial, investing, and retirement puzzle continue to get more complicated, feel confident in your financial future at Janney Montgomery Scott. Janney's analysts and market strategists have the knowledge and expertise to help you understand trends and identify opportunities in changing markets. Call George Prezioso at 718-238-4800 for a complimentary consultation and financial report. Or go to Janney.com, Janney Montgomery Scott, LLC. Founded in 1985, the Brooklyn Veterinarian Group, located on New Utrecht Avenue, has been serving the community's pet needs for over 25 years. Dr. Pernice and his staff handle everything from prevention of heartworms, fleas, ticks to vaccinations, x-rays, and routine surgical procedures. Call 718-331-7775. Again, that number is 718-331-7775. Check out their website at www.brooklynvetgroup.com. Mention In the Arena and receive 10% off your first visit. In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington on 710 WOR. Hey, gang, welcome back to In the Arena. My name is Monsignor Kieran Harrington. We're speaking with Chris Whipple. He's the acclaimed writer, journalist, documentary filmmaker, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. I just want to read you one thing. Chris Whipple takes us deep inside one of the most important and demanding jobs in Washington. Here, we get to know how great power is managed and exercised. If you're a political junkie or merely curious, this is the book for you, Tom Brokaw. 
Tell us, thank you very much, Chris, for being with us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Tell us a little bit. You say that the uh, chief of staff is the second most important job in government. Why? You know, it's hard to it's hard to exaggerate how critical that job is. It's not in the Constitution. He's unelected and unconfirmed. They've all been men, of course, up to this point. Um, but, you know, he's famously the gatekeeper who controls access to the Oval Office, or should, and thereby giving the president time and space to think. He's the closest confidant to the president. He's the He's the guy who controls the information flow to the president and makes sure that every decision is teed up with information on every side of every issue. And it, But, you know, at the end of the day, the chief of staff is the guy who can tell the president what he doesn't want to hear. Uh, at least a, a successful chief will do that. You know, if this is the guy who is a curator of information that goes before the president as the president makes an, a decision, how has this device kind of change that job? Well, it, it's, it's just made the job uh, even more grueling and thankless and relentless uh, than it's ever been. And, you know, it's, it's Dick Cheney, who is a great untold story as, as, as Gerald Ford's 34-year-old White House chief of staff. He blames the stress of the job for triggering his first heart attack really? uh, about a year later. Um, it's, it's relentless. It's thankless. You take all of the blame and none of the credit. And, of course, technology has made the information flow uh, a 24-7 proposition. So when you're thinking about a good chief of staff, what are the criteria by which you would uh, select this person? Well, you know, it's, it's, it, it, there are so many sides to the job that it requires a really uh, uh, extraordinary combination of skills. You know, one of the least appreciated, uh, I think, is temperament. You know, think about Jim Baker, who was considered the gold standard under Ronald Reagan. This was a guy who was 50 years old, a smooth as silk Texas lawyer who had nothing to prove and could walk into the Oval Office and close the door behind him and tell Ronald Reagan what he didn't want to hear. Leon Panetta could do that with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was pretty tough to, uh, you know, pretty undisciplined in the beginning. But Leon Panetta could do that. He was described as a guy with an iron fist inside a velvet glove. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't have to be the president's quote-unquote son of a bitch you can do it with a little bit more finesse, but but that's that's a key thing is being a, being a grown up and being comfortable in your own skin. So, what do you think is what is it that these men? What's the bond? Is it temperament then that is the bond that kind of well, for makes the, somebody great as a chief of staff? Well, for the for the good ones, but but it also requires you know think about Baker, who was the gold standard by all accounts. Baker was a guy who had all of those qualities, but he also he. He'd been in the White House. He knew he, Jim Baker. Jim Baker. Yeah. He knew how it worked. He he knew Capitol Hill. Uh, you know those guys could count votes and they could tell Reagan uh, whether uh, whether legislation was going to fly or not. Um, you know those are those are some of the qualities that are uh, you know sadly lacking at the moment on on, on in the White House. So uh, so you're not particularly enamored of Reince Priebus at the moment. I think Priebus, a uh, couple of things about Priebus. First, first of all, it's been rookie mistake after rookie mistake, beginning with uh, the executive order on immigration. No competent White House chief would allow an executive order to go out into the world, essentially written on the back of an envelope and, and not vetted by the agencies in charge of enforcing it. So it's been one after another of, of mistakes like that. But at the end of the day, Donald Trump, it's, it's really on Trump. 
uh, because Trump has not empowered a White House chief as first among equals. And until that happens, you know, there's very little Priebus can do uh, to make the to help Trump govern. Yeah. Let me give you a couple of names and just tell me a brief description of each person, a word or two about each of these guys. Rahm Emanuel. Uh, Rahm was famously the guy who always took the hill. And for Obama, of course, that was Capitol Hill. He got stuff done. Dick Cheney. As Gerald Ford's 34-year-old White House chief of staff, he was the most popular guy in Washington. James Baker. The gold standard, the guy who uh, everybody has modeled themselves after. Leon Panetta. Uh, An iron fist inside a velvet glove. Andy Card. The guy who made sure that the president was never hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Mac McAlarty. Mac the nice, uh, the most popular guy in, on Cap- in Washington. Don Rumsfeld. Uh, all throttle, no break. If you're evaluating uh, today, what would you, who would be a person that you would recommend Donald Trump consider for chief of staff? Well, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to try to be. There's a lot of talk that Reince is on his way. I don't want to. I don't want to try to be Donald Trump's personnel director. Um, <laughs> you know, um, but you know, it it really requires every president learns often the hard way that you cannot govern effectively without empowering a White House chief of staff as first among equals, and that and that guy or woman should be somebody that the president has so much respect for that he will listen and 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 pay attention when he's told stuff he doesn't want to hear and and I don't know who that person is I mean Jim Mattis uh, you know is is somebody who evidently has uh, Trump's respect and has managed to turn him around on torture for example mm-hmm. um he needs you know you you've got to have when you're president of the United States a grown up in the room who can tell you stuff uh, you don't want to hear. But really, can the chief of staff only be as successful as the principal is himself? Yeah, there's nothing a chief can do if he's if he's not empowered. You know, as Erskine Bowles told me, and, and Bowles was really successful as Clinton's uh, third chief of staff succeeding Panetta. He said, you know, the moment that the president does not is not speaking, that the, I'm sorry, that the chief is not speaking for the president, people can sense it, they can smell it, they can sniff it. And you're a dead man walking. If you were to think uh, of the person who is least successful, <clears throat> least successful as a White House chief of staff of the mongs, the, the ones that you looked at, who was it? Probably, uh, alas, hands down, I think it would be Donald Reagan, who succeeded really? James A. Baker III. Because of his relationship with the First Lady? Well, yeah, that 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 was the that that's how he he met his untimely end. But when he arrived, he was he was a former chairman of Merrill Lynch. He was imperious. He was arrogant. He was oblivious, uh, and as a result, um, you know, he, he didn't pay much attention to this uh, harebrained scheme that turned out to be the Iran Contra scandal. What do you think is the most important decision a chief makes coming into a job? First decision in terms of maybe personnel. You know, hard to put hard to put my finger on one decision, um, but I do think that the the chief has to be sure that he has that there are clear lines of authority and a real chain of command. Uh, the really successful chiefs have been guys who were empowered as first among equals, and 
you know, we've seen this we've seen this movie before with the family trying to take over. And and Jim Baker was able to befriend Nancy Reagan, for example, and Mike Deaver, who was like family to Reagan. Uh, I, I haven't seen it. I mean, it's clear that Priebus is no Jim Baker. Yeah. You know, it's uh, interesting. There's a story told about uh, Andy Card that he got a call from Colin Powell. Uh, Colin Powell wanted to bring in some staff person, and uh, basically the White House was not allowing it. And Colin Powell calls him up and says, I need this guy. I need him on my staff, and I need him. I'm the Secretary of State. And uh, Andy Card said to him, Mr. Secretary, if you want to hire your own people— Run for president. <laughs> yeah. No, and, uh, you know, listen, that's been, it's been true really since the Nixon administration that that the, the key decisions, the life and death decisions, the the central uh, questions are deci- have been decided in the White House. How tough do you think that job is? It's, um, you know, every, every a new chief of staff, if he's smart, his first co- for phone call is to Jim Baker. And Baker always tells him the same thing. Congratulations, you've got the worst blanking job in Washington. If you were to say the thing that you uh, were most surprised about, all the people you looked at, what were the things that most surprised you about these guys? Well, you know, it's, this is not just a book with lessons, po- political science lessons or governing lessons. It's a book about uh, 17 fascinating human beings. One of, one of the great untold stories is Dick Cheney, who was, you know, as a 34-year-old chief, he was the most popular guy in town. He was self-effacing. His Secret Service code name was Backseat. Mm-hmm. You know, ever since the chiefs have been saying to themselves, well, whatever happened to that guy? <laughs> uh, and it's a mystery that I try to, yeah. to, to get at in the book. That's wonderful. If you were to give me your most uh, favorite story in the book, what is it? Maybe the unbelievable uh, story of the day uh, that all the living chiefs except two came to the White House to give the incoming chief, Rahm Emanuel, advice. It's it's the opening chapter of the book. And as they went around the table, they, they had some serious advice. They finally got to Dick Cheney, who was the current vice president. And he looked at Rahm and he said, at all costs, control your vice president. The Gatekeepers, Chris Whipple's book. Tom Powers says, what the Chiefs do is what politics is. Every page of Whipple's book casts fresh light on the greatest events of the last 50 years. Thanks very much for being with us, Chris. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. St. Sebastian is a thriving parish. The chapel is open for adoration with benediction weekdays from 7.30 until 6.45 and Sundays from 8 to 5. There are also weeknight masses every day at 7 p.m. with a Spanish service on Thursdays, in addition to the regular Sunday mass schedule, which offers eight opportunities for worship, including a 10.30 a.m. mass with ASL interpreter and a noon mass in Spanish. Come out and join us at 3963 57th Street in Woodside, New York. And Butchies of Brooklyn, Italian kitchen and legendary desserts. We offer everything, a cafe, a bakery, a restaurant, and full bar. Our kitchen offers old-world Italian recipes, handed down from generation to generation, specializing in Italian-American cuisine. Let us host your next affair in our home, or we can cater to you in your home. Located in Staten Island at 4864 Arthur Kill Road, and you can call us at 718-227-0002. The FBI reports there is a burglary in the U.S. every 15 seconds. If you're not alarmed, you should be. At Alarms R Us, we keep your loved ones safe with our burglar and fire alarm systems and 24-hour central station monitoring. Call Alarms R Us toll-free at 866-996-6900 to schedule your free security consultation. Again, that number is 866-996-6900. It's always better to be safe than sorry. 
So call Alarms R Us now to protect your home and family. Founded in 1985, the Brooklyn Veterinarian Group, located on New Utrecht Avenue, has been serving the community's pet needs for over 25 years. Dr. Pernice and his staff handle everything from prevention of heartworms, fleas, ticks to vaccinations, x-rays, and routine surgical procedures. Call 718-331-7775. Again, that number is 718-331-7775. Check out their website at www.brooklynvetgroup.com. Mention In the Arena and receive 10% off your first visit. As the pieces of the financial investing and retirement puzzle continue to get more complicated, feel confident in your financial future at Jannie Montgomery Scott. Jannie's analysts and market strategists have the knowledge and expertise to help you understand trends and identify opportunities in changing markets. Call George Prezioso at 718-238-4800 for a complimentary consultation and financial report. Or go to Jannie.com, Jannie Montgomery Scott, LLC. In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington. Call in at 347-921-4NET. 347-921-4NET. All right, gang. Welcome back to In the Arena. My name is Monsignor Kieran Harrington. We have with us Pat Halp, and he's the managing director of Mercury Public Affairs to kind of talk about all things going on in the world. Talk to us about Trump Care. Trump Care? Trump Care. It's not Trump Care. It's Trump I don't care. Why? Why do you say that? Look, Hubert Humphrey once said, how do you measure a just government? It's how you treat people at the dawn of life, the new, the babies. How do you treat people at the end of life, at the night of life, the elderly? And how you pe- treat people in between? Is that the responsibility the dis- of government? Pat? Yes, That's the responsibility is. of human beings. It's isn't the, it? it's it's not, it's, that's look, our common responsibility. Government, that's not government's responsibility. Yes, it is. Because government Why? is a reflection of the society that we all live here's in. A, here's a, we are, do you want the government to take care of every personal need you have? I want the government. We look, we're a wealthy country. We are the only industrialized country, first world country, that does not provide them. And I listen to me. Health care from conception to death. Yeah, and we should. We can afford it. It's a question of priorities. Here, a, we have money Pat, for just wars. Let me, just let, me ask you, let me ask a question. Let me ask you a question. 15 years of wars, trillions right. of dollars. But we don't have money okay, to take Pat, care let of. me just ask you a question. Here, here's the thing. Is, is that, yeah. here's a, this is the first time under Obamacare, first time in U.S. history, that the government ever obligated, ever obligated somebody to buy something. You were never, ever obligated to buy anything. The government obligates. Here, we got these guys here in the room. They're young guys. They're freelancers. Guess what? They're obligated under Obamacare to buy health insurance. Guess, if they don't do it, guess what the government says? Bang. We're going we're gonna to charge you some money and pay, make you pay a penalty. Now, come on. Is that is that the way this government should be operating? Yes, I'll you tell you why. A, you I'll, think the government I'll should you, you should I force t- you to buy something? I will tell you why. Force you to buy something. Listen, we're all paying for that uninsured care. These guys here in the studio, yeah. they don't have health insurance. They've got nothing. They end up in an emergency room because they have the flu, and they have no insurance. Okay, so now Hold the question. On. Now why pays, is that? You, but my, my question. So here's that. my question. Why does that then become Pat Halpin's responsibility? Because it gets put on our taxes. It goes into, oh. it gets put on our taxes. called the bad debt and charity pool. All the Catholic hospitals so why, why would go that become out of your responsibility? business if we didn't have that. And the deal that the hospitals made is that so when, when, did, hold so, on, when Obamacare occurred, because it's important, when Obamacare occurred, say we will not take the bad debt and charity pool as much as we used to get 
although we still have people walking in with insur- without insurance, because we know that more people will be insured, and they won't the thing, end up in our thing. emergency if rooms he, getting high costly care because they have the, the fact a fever. Is, the fact they could is, go to the doctor for less. Fact is, is if we, you don't have, there's no if free you, lunch. If you go into if you go into an insurance, if you go into a hospital and you don't have insurance, the fact is, is then. You owe the hospital the money. It's not immediately that I gotta pay. You gotta oh. pay. So, so here's a question: If you really believe that, you believe that healthcare is a right. Have you, yes, you believe, I do. You believe that you have a right, an absolute right to healthcare. Does everyone have the right to the same exact quality healthcare? Uh, people should be conf- exact people same quality. Be, yes. If you want to be, everybody should be able to go to the exact same kind of have access to the same. We sort should of doctor. have single payer healthcare. Okay, that why that didn't Obama com- do that? Because the Republicans didn't permit the, the Republicans he didn't get one Republican vote. He had all Democrats. He didn't need a Republican. Would not permit but he didn't do it. a public option. He didn't. He didn't do it. He could have. He had not one single Republican vote. And Why didn't he do it? Those are the things we should be doing, Monsignor. But he didn't if do we it. want to fix Obamacare, right. Listen, create, create a public option. Let, by the way, let, let, do you know? Do you know that the let's, biggest let's pair move of, on for a moment. Let's move on from because we got a lot to talk yeah, about. Right? To, we got a lot to talk about. All right. uh, this past week, Trump dismissed CBS Face Nation host John Dickerson. Uh, who said basically this is defacing the nation? He, he kind of spoke about the, the what is defacing the, the nation? Fa- face the nation is his show, CBS's show. Oh. He said he basically Trump is saying, listen, it's media bias, and he's saying the fake news. He's saying that uh, Congress is slow. I mean, do you think the president ha- is on to something when he speaks about uh, the bias in the news? Well, let's be specific about projects. No, no, about what Dickerson was pressing President Trump about. President Trump said that President Obama wiretapped him and the people in his campaign. The FBI said that's not true. The CIA said that's not true. It was a flat-out lie. Dickerson said to him, what evidence do you have? He goes, well, it's out there. He goes, you are the president, Mr. President. Present the the evidence. Donald Trump, unfortunately, if he was a Catholic, he'd be going to— confession once a week and yeah. it'll be a long confession for all yeah. of the falsehoods and that is one of the most grievous ones so, so what, accusing what about, president obama you, you and steve, of lying you and steve you and stephen colbert share the same thing he launched into an immediate rant and said uh, that uh, uh, he he launched into a rant that was actually a little bit vulgar saying that trump is def, trump is defacing the presidency Look, my mother would wash Disgracing my mouth the out for things, and she did back in the day. This is when mothers were, you know, they. I had a good, beautiful Irish Catholic mother who went to Mass every day during Lent. Now, you have to understand, if I talk that way in her presence, whether be, uh, whether whether it be at my age now or when I was young, my mouth would get washed out but by do you soap. Think that, do you think I that you could have a national— Stephen Colbert's mouth would have been washed out with soap. And, and the president's mouth over the years should, would be washed oh, but out. But, I mean, Stephen Colbert was Doesn't the one make it who right. was— I, I think it's offensive. But, yeah, I hear you. So here's a question. Should he, uh, you know, if a, if a this, this was a conservative talk show guy going after the president, uh, President Obama, do you think this guy would have lasted or not? Would it have been— You know what? I'm, I'm against boycotts. This is the bias that he's I, talking this is, about. You know, I don't agree with anything Sean Hannity says, but I think boycotts. If you, you don't like it, turn it off. And unfortunately, today, in the media, so there's Stephen, too much vulgar Stephen stuff be going out there. Punished by CBS? You know, it's up to CBS. All right, healthcare we talked about uh, was given new life this week with Republicans adding the Upton Amendment, which gives an additional eight billion to cover those with pre-existing conditions. Does the GOP bill have a shot? Do you think? What's your prediction? Is this thing going to be actually become law? It's got to get through the House of Representatives, okay? Then it's got to go to the Senate. What's going to happen? There are huge problems with the House Republican bill. 
And I was just down in Washington. I do a show called Meet the Leaders for, for Cable Network, interviewing a bunch of Republicans, conservative Republicans who are not voting for this because they say the fundamentally it does not cover pre-existing conditions and it will drive up but that's the Upton Amendment. That's but what that it's does, to That's do. not going to be enough to cover. This is, this is, this is not even a Band-Aid. It's, it's simply a press release. All right. Tell, tell us a little bit uh, about uh, Comey, Director Comey. What about him? Do you think his— He cost uh, the election. He cost Hillary Clinton He says he didn't. He said no, he, he didn't. didn't. He's, he he, re, he rejected. Every pollster— and, and and I know people who were out there in, in the campaign working for Hillary. But didn't Hillary work, take work, responsibility for it? Work, didn't she take personal responsibility? And you're a Democratic it, operative, all, right? But I'm not she, an operative. You, you were it an changed. operative. It ch- I was a county executive of Suffolk County, okay. the largest county in the state they, of New okay. York. So tell yeah. us, did she, did, did she, she took personal responsibility for it, didn't she? She took personal responsibility for a loss. Hey, look, at the end of the day, there are a lot of decisions made in campaigns. Like if you lose an election and you don't go to a particular state, let's say, you know, Wisconsin, you know, can you, can you say that it was my fault? It was a handful you, of votes. That, look, yeah, re- but she remember, didn't go there. She didn't go there Hillary, once. Hillary, she didn't make one visit. She made visits there during the primary, but she thought she had. She look she in made, the general election. She didn't make one visit. Yeah. What do you expect? The bottom fell out of her campaign when Comey announced shortly before the election that he was reopening this investigation, and he broke. Just well, the polls didn't rules. seem to suggest that. Yes, it does. The polls didn't Nat seem Silver to suggest yet, that. Not, not Silver. In uh, the New York Times yesterday, he's a great guru who analyzes all these polls. He said there's no doubt in my mind that, that Hillary, o- Hillary Clinton's uh, forward progress started going in reverse with that and Trump's and Trump's went forward. Now, look, Trump won the election all right, well, you know, well, well, because well, you've know, you got to run the whole race. Well, yeah, listen, to your yeah, point, yeah. to your point about Wisconsin and yeah, Michigan, yeah. you've got to run the whole race. Yeah, listen, but there's no question that Pat, that was a Here's the thing. Blow. If you listen, the fact is, is if you were her campaign manager, you wouldn't say – Hey, Hillary, let's go to Texas, baby, because we got our chance of winning. You would have said, hey, let's make sure we got our base locked down in places. So so they, they have to – Hillary took personal responsibility. Don't you think we have to say, listen, what and no. what Director Comey did or didn't do, that was maybe it should say something about the future. But but the fact is this. The fact is, is Huma Abedin, who is, was her personal aide, very close to her, had been exchanging emails – uh, thousands of them that were unsecured, using her comp- with with Anthony Weiner, who we know is kind of a security risk. He's there a is sick a real human being. Yeah, so there was a security risk. He there. needs therapy. Yeah, I, I agree and, with you. And maybe Uma does too for sticking with him. Well, I mean, I don't but know. You know if what? He... God bless her. You know, I don't know. People make promises. They should stay together. I get it. You, you know. know. The question is, my question but is, they is, probably need therapy. My question is, is that it seems like there was at least some reason. For an investigation. That, that's the thing. You want to discount that, say there was no, no, no There no. is a reason I'm, I'm for not, an investigation. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have investigated, but Justice Department rules, which predate Obama and everybody else say, that when you're that close to an election, you don't announce any indictments, you don't announce investigations. You, those, just you don't think that's don't material? Do to, you don't think that's material to the decisions well, it, that Americans way, have to make? It turned Come out on. that it wasn't material, except that it did enormous damage because they didn't do what they were supposed to do, which is you go, you go get a search well, warrant, well, well, you, you get the you look at all those emails and you decide if anything all there right. is. So, so here's my question to you: Is this all the shiny object in the room? Because to my mind, we, we have all these vigorous discussions about emails, Hillary Clinton, all this stuff. It doesn't really matter. Uh, Trump's the president, and you know what? We have serious problems. We sure do. And, and and serious problem is this: From my perspective, most important responsibility of government is to provide for the common defense. And we have serious problems in Syria. We got serious problems in the North China Sea. We got serious problems with Korea. What what do we do here? Look, you're right. 
we are are are, are chasing a shiny object and 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 relitigating the last election is one of them. I didn't bring that topic up, Monsignor. With all due respect, <laughs> you did. Um, we have, we have important responsibilities. But why don't Democrats just simply say, "Hey, listen, let's not talk about these things." You know what's important? Let's talk about what are we doing in Syria right now. Let's I, not talk about these things. Let's talk about how. What is our policy on North Korea? Let's not talk about these things. What's our policy with China? I couldn't agree more. And and we should be having a full conversation. I don't think we, I don't think we have enough information, for example, about what the House is about to approve when it comes to health care. Yeah. I mean, there the Congressional Budget Office has not scored this latest proposal. Those are all important things. So you, I agree with you completely. Why is populism kind of taking a wave that's kind of crashing over the world? Look at Marine Le Pen in France. Yeah. Why is this happening throughout the well, world? Well, as you, you know think? better than most, it's easy to appeal. To our lesser angels than to our better angels. I mean, on Sunday, I presume you spend a lot of time thinking about how you get people to 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 think more about themselves, their lives, and where we all fit into the into the world we we resided for this moment. Um, it's easy to appeal to people's worst instincts, and that's really unfortunate. What's your concern about the Trump proposal for the budget? Are you talking about the budget tax proposal, plan. Ta- the tax, tax plan? plan. Yeah. Well, there's an enormous shift of resources to the wealthiest Americans, to the wealthiest, you know, point one percent, trillions of dollars over ten years. What do you will think be about stripped away from the government? What do you think about to give the, people these tax breaks? What about I want to see he wants, he wants to do away with deductions. Like for instance, one of the deductions he wants to do is the state and local tax deduction. Yeah, that How does be, that? That would be a disaster. Why for, would that be a disaster? Because you know what? It's very simple. We shouldn't be paying tax on taxes that we're paying to our towns, our villages, our cities, our states. It's just immoral, and and it would destroy. Um, communities doesn't like it kind Long of equal? Island, doesn't like it equalize New Jersey and elsewhere? Because we unfortunately have very high property taxes. But maybe that's going to doesn't that kind of kind of make counties and places kind of live within their means, not just kind of jacking up rates? Well, you know, in New York, uh, Governor Cuomo pushed through a tax cap, yeah, and that has had a profound impact on holding down increases in taxes. But you look at the uh, loss of deductibility of state and local taxes. All those parishioners who come to uh, mass on Sunday and make their contributions religiously yeah. uh, would have more would have a, would have enormous difficulty. You're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars of additional cost. Uh, what's the most What's goes. the most important issue you're watching right now? Keeping an eye on. I'm most concerned about health care. Okay, I really am. I'm. I am because, in, in my opinion, look, it's it's nearly a third of our entire economy. I mean, maybe it'd be a little bit more. And it's something that really needs to be thought. So, about. Why, you think, so Trump why, why are you concerned about it if they can't? If you, why are you concerned about it if you don't think anything's going to get done on it? I didn't say anything's not going to get done. I look, if, if, I was a me- if I was a member of Congress, a lot of House members would say, "Well, just kick the ball to the Senate and hope that they do the right thing." Yeah. That is not the job of a representative. Pat Halpin is managing director of Mercury Public Affairs. Thanks very much, Pat, for coming in and sharing your thoughts on all the news that's happening in our world today. Thank you. We'll be right back. Dear Calvary Hospital, my dad was at the end of his life, suffering from pancreatic cancer. I knew there was only one place that could relieve his pain and ours as well, Calvary Hospital. His wish was to die at home, so it was Calvary Home Hospice that provided dad with the quality of life he deserved, filled with exceptional comfort and warmth. He passed on with dignity and grace, and we were all there with him. A year later, my mom needed the same Calvary care. 
And once again, Calvary's expert home hospice staff was there for us. My parents gave me unqualified love their entire lives. There was no better way for me to return this love than with Calvary's care. Yours truly, Deborah DiGregorio. This is Frank Calamari, president of Calvary Hospital. Our world-renowned hospice program brings our expert end-of-life care right into your home. Call us at 718-518-2465. Liquid Dreams Design. Outstanding for all your printing needs, especially same-day service, including banners, signs, posters, graphics, custom wall coverings, and step-and-repeat backdrops. Call 718-627-8599 and mention to Sales Media Now to get 10% off. Or visit their website at liquiddreamsdesign.com. As the pieces of the financial, investing, and retirement puzzle continue to get more complicated, feel confident in your financial future at Jannie Montgomery Scott. Jannie's analysts and market strategists have the knowledge and expertise to help you understand trends and identify opportunities in changing markets. Call George Prezioso at 718-238-4800 for a complimentary consultation and financial report. Or go to Jannie.com, Jannie Montgomery Scott, LLC. Founded in 1985, the Brooklyn Veterinarian Group, located on New Utrecht Avenue, has been serving the community's pet needs for over 25 years. Dr. Pernice and his staff handle everything from prevention of heartworms, fleas, ticks to vaccinations, x-rays, and routine surgical procedures. Call 718-331-7775. Again, that number is 718-331-7775. Check out their website at www.brooklynvetgroup.com. Mention In the Arena and receive 10% off your first visit. The FBI reports there is a burglary in the U.S. every 15 seconds. If you're not alarmed, you should be. At Alarms R Us, we keep your loved ones safe with our burglar and fire alarm systems and 24-hour central station monitoring. Call Alarms R Us toll-free at 866-996-6900 to schedule your free security consultation. Again, that number is 866-996-6900. It's always better to be safe than sorry. So call Alarms or Us now to protect your home and family. And Butchies of Brooklyn, Italian kitchen and legendary desserts. We offer everything, a cafe, a bakery, a restaurant, and full bar. Our kitchen offers old-world Italian recipes, handed down from generation to generation, specializing in Italian-American cuisine. Let us host your next affair in our home, or we can cater to you in your home. Located in Staten Island at 4864 Arthur Kill Road, and you can call us at 718-227-0002. In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington on 710 WOR. All right, gang, welcome back to In the Arena. This is the month of May, and it's the month dedicated to Mary, our Blessed Mother. Uh, Very appropriate when you think about uh, May coming up as Mother's Day, a day where we think about our own mothers. Of course, uh, May 13th, we'll be celebrating the 100th anniversary of Our Lady of Fatima. And so I'm very grateful to have with me uh, on in the arena today, Alexis Walkenstein, who is the new host of the radio show, Mary's Touch. Welcome, Alexis. Hi, Monsignor. It's great to be with you. Tell us a little bit about Mary's Touch. What is it and what is it about? Mary's Touch is a weekly half hour uh, radio show that reaches over 100 syndicated stations, Catholic stations around the world. 
And it began about a decade ago. A woman, faithful woman of God named Sherry Lamonte had a vision for this program. And just this year, they asked me to take over um, to begin a new decade for a new generation. Relevant Radio is one of our partners. Are you on Relevant Radio? I believe we are on Relevant Radio. It's one of the, the major carriers. Yep, that's wonderful. Tell us a little bit. You are a public relations account manager. How do you find yourself in the host chair? Well, it was interesting. I met Sherry um, repping her apostolate frontline faith, which was an apostolate for military men and women that sprung forth from Mary's Touch. And we met years ago, and now I work in Hollywood. I work in the film industry here, promoting faith-based films. And uh, we reconnected, and it's just like God's economy to reconnect his disciples to do new and great things. So um, that's really how it wove together, and I can't think of anything better than to advance Our Lady. You know, the Holy Father uh, has great devotion to Our Lady Untire of Knots. Uh, You know, the one who, when he was in Germany, he— developed this devotion. It had been a very painful period in his in his life after just leaving Argentina and the Jesuit community where he had been superior and had kind of been pushed aside. Uh, I wonder if you can speak to us a little bit about how the Blessed Mother helps undo the knots in your life and in mine. She really does. You know, I first came into that awareness of the devotion to Mary under undoer of knots when I was working in the diocese of Palm beach and a big box of the prayer booklets that were being promoted in our diocese arrived, but they were all in Spanish and other languages. And I looked at it and I noticed the image. The imagery is so powerful, how our lady is holding the ribbon, essentially the ribbon of our lives in her hands. And it wasn't until many years later that I actually really took that devotion seriously and started to pray the novena. And I began to see really how our lady takes the areas of our lives that we either mess up, you know, by our own will or our own decisions that aren't in tune with heaven's decisions and God's will. And so it's been a powerful devotion in my life. And I think there's a double blessing that that he um, is promoting undoer of knots. I I encourage everybody that I meet to pray it because I think you can't lose with Our Lady and especially with the idea that she can untangle us to be set free to really do God's will. So on uh, May 13th, uh, we're going to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Our Lady of Fatima. Why do you think that that uh, apparition of Our Lady in Fatima was so significant? I think think it's significant because Our Lady is um, showing us that God's mercy and love for us are um, eternal that he never stops coming and he sends us his mother and he's calling us um, through Our Lady to conversion and to a new life in Christ. So I think this year is important. It's a hundred years and there are many in our generation that could say, oh, that's my grandmother's faith or that was a hundred years ago. But we have this drumbeat of the church really pounding away at the message of Fatima yet again, a hundred years later to call us back to the rosary, to call us to change our lives, to call people who may have been away from the sacraments for years to make a return to the Lord and to do it through Our Lady, to come back and to hear the call of Mary, who visited very simple children. Um, she comes and brings her message through the simple. And um, no matter who we are in the world, the simple to the um, extravagant, you know, God wants all of us. God wants to bring all of humanity back to um, to his heart. And Mary is the one that's that's doing that through Fatima. So I think it's an amazing year of grace. People should not shrink back. They should just enter in.
You know, Alexis, I'm curious, when you think about, uh, we celebrated Easter a few weeks ago, and then the week after, the Divine Mercy Sunday. And, uh, you know, the Sister Faustina, the visions of our of our Lord, uh, Jesus Christ, who basically said this is the, the last effort to kind of get people to experience God's mercy, to turn away from sin so that they might be safe from the fires of hell. And, of course, uh, the Fatima prayer, when we say, Oh, my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, lead all souls to heaven, especially those most in need of thy mercy. Seems like this is this question about hell uh, and the inferno or the damnation of hell is lost on a lot of Catholics. Why is that? Why is it that we've kind of lost the sense of of hell and damnation and and our our desire to avoid that? Right. And I think that when you're so caught up in sin, when a culture is so full of sin, it's harder to see the light. And yet God has given us this great year of mercy last year as a precursor to this year, this great Marian year of Fatima. But you're right. I think that um, our culture, there's so much noise, there's so much sin, there's so much um, distance between our culture and God. And yet I believe that God is raising up a whole new generation of people who are Marian apostles, who are apostles of his mercy, to really advance these messages and to make them fresh and new, not changing the message, but to bring people who are in the world and not of the world to really be able to get into these industries where people are, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's the business sector and Wall Street, but to really, um, if we are called to live our baptismal call and we are going out to bring the whole good news out into the whole world, we're not afraid to go live our call in our professional way and to be that light and to open our mouths and to then really share the gospel and to help people come back, to help people amend their lives. It's true. We are living in very dark times and um, people are dead. Their senses are deadened to the idea of hell. And I don't know if it's the parents' generation waned a little bit and then the next generation waned. I think we're all looking for those answers. But I do think that there's enough of us to go around to be able to be those light bearers. You know, how do you say, you know, uh, Ian West is our uh, producer here. This is a good Catholic kid, grows up in Delaware, falls in love with an evangelical girl. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, she starts putting in his head all this thing that you Catholics are like into Mary worship and all this kind of crazy stuff. So what do you say to Ian West to say, you know, the importance of the place of the Blessed Mother in our life as Christians? I think that, you know, if we look to our culture, just the, you know, the regular ordinary culture of the world, we have all these things that we do to honor our mothers. Uh, Mother's Day is coming up. We do all kinds of things to honor women. I mean, what's different about honoring the mother of God? You know, and and God gave, Jesus Christ gave us his mother at the foot of the cross. He said, you know, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And at that moment, the whole church became, um, you know, under Mary's mantle. We we entered under the, the charge of Mary. All of our prayers, all of our needs can pass through her heart. Alexis Wolkenstein is the new host of the radio show Mary's Touch. Thanks very much for being with us, Alexis. We'll see you very soon, and may the Lord hold you all in the palm of his hand. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.